Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Yes, we are so glad you're here with us today. Hey, we've got lots of things that are happening at Christ Community, and we would love for you to be a part of them. So we've got ways to get connected, groups, um, events that are happening. So be sure to go to our website and check out what's going on. Um, also, be sure to like and subscribe uh, to our YouTube channel here. Um, so that way you know, get notified when more content's coming out. So enjoy the message. Hello, Christ Community. Glad you're here. Again, uh, Faith in Blue weekend. So after the services, we encourage you to just connect with the police officers who are going to be out there in our lobby. So I recently had a, had a birthday. And um, so I had to process this reality of being a year older. And I actually feel really good. You know, I feel really good. I don't really feel that old, except except when I'm using my cell phone. Um, and that's when I feel my age, because, because I really like to use the speech-to-text feature. And whenever I do that in the presence of anyone under 30 years old, I can feel the eye roll, you know? But I just, I love being able to speak into my phone and those words kind of become a text rather than trying to type all those tiny letters with my fingers and all that. But there are a couple challenges. If you've ever done speech to text, you probably know this. There are a couple challenges. One is that I'm, <laughs> is that when you, when you do speech to text, you have to say things like question mark and period. And the problem is I am so used to saying question mark and period that when now when I leave a message on someone's phone, an audible message on someone's phone, I'm often saying period and question mark. And it's really embarrassing. And then I can't take it back because I just said it. Um, and the, the other challenging thing that I've noticed about speech to text is that often my phone doesn't really hear my words correctly. Um, the other day I was trying to email myself a a, just a, a reminder, a thought. I, you know, I get this in the car. I get a thought about a sermon and I'm like, I don't want to forget that. And so I was emailing myself um, sort of this, this, this reminder and I used speech to text and I said, our vision of Jesus and what my phone typed was starfish and if she says. Um, so, so today, even though I'm planning on talking about Jesus, if I start talking about starfish, you'll sort of understand what's going on. All right. But really, that whole experience is, is just such a great reminder how so often we feel like we're, really, we're communicating really clearly to someone, right? We feel like we're very clear in what we're communicating, but we actually have no idea what is being heard. And I wonder if this is how Jesus felt throughout the book of John. We're continuing our walk through the book of John, and I'm wondering how this has felt, because Jesus is clearly articulating over and over again. He's clearly articulating who he is, and yet here we are in John chapter 12, the passage we're looking at today, where, where Jesus is experiencing his final days on earth, and people are still asking these questions, and it's like, have you been paying attention at all, right? Check out verse 34, John 12. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? I'm like, where have you guys been for three years? I mean, Jesus has been repeatedly describing himself as the son of man, the Messiah. It is clear, even as we find ourselves in John chapter 12, as Jesus is nearing the end of his mission on earth, there continues to be this significant group of people who are so stuck in their religious paradigm. They're so stuck in their religious system that they are unable to truly see Jesus. Okay, in fact, a few verses later, John quotes from the book of Isaiah. And John, you can tell, he's kind of frustrated as well. He's, he, this is what he says. He calls out this even more. Verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, 
they still would not believe in him. And then he says, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. And then God says, and I would heal them. God wants to heal them. And yet due to their, their, just their unwillingness to budge, their hearts are hardened, their eyes are blind, they, they are continuing in their unbelief. So Jesus is about to go to the cross and these people are still stuck in their ways. But, but here's what is so powerful about the passage that we're looking at today. Yes, John describes these people who are still stuck in this inertia of unbelief, but John also introduces us to a group of people who are not stuck. And as we're gonna see, this group of people represents a completely different pathway of thriving and life. Now, the way John introduces this group of people, we're gonna get there, but the way he introduces this is really creative and pretty fascinating. As Pastor Mariana mentioned last week, she explained last week, Jesus' final week begins with him entering the city of Jerusalem, you know, the, the Palm Sunday, all of that. Uh, and a large crowd of people are praising him as the Messiah, the one sent from God to rescue and deliver his people. Now, not surprisingly, there are some religious leaders, religious leaders who are watching all this happen and they're not very happy about it. And John tells us in verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, they obviously don't mean this literally, but they are bemoaning the extent of Jesus' influence, right? Huge crowds are like the whole world has gone after him. Now, here's what's so fascinating. John takes that comment about the whole world following Jesus, and he shows how what they're complaining about is actually happening beyond what they could even, what they even realized. Look at what happens. Very next verse, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Okay, now think about this. Up to this point in the book of John, the entire book of John has been almost entirely focused on Jesus' ministry to the Jews, his ministry among the Jews. His miracles, his teaching have been primarily directed towards the Jewish people and their leaders. But here we read about this group of non-Jews, these Greeks who are in Jerusalem for the Passover, and they want to see Jesus. Now, you see, John wants us to see here. He's, he, he's, I mean, these two verses, you he, he know what he's doing here. He wants us to see that the exaggerated complaint of the Pharisees in verse 19 about the whole world following Jesus, that actually is beginning to take place. Because we see, we see people beyond the Jewish nation coming to Jesus. And I want us to notice what John highlights as the characteristic of these non-Jewish people who are approaching Jesus. Notice what they are requesting. Verse 21, we would like to see Jesus. We would like to see Jesus. Here are these people 
They're non-Jews. They don't have the law. They don't have the prophets. They don't have the synagogues, but they do have one thing. Desire. We want to see Jesus. They're, they're not coming, notice, they're not coming to, unlike the Jews, they're not coming to Jesus with a theological argument. They're not coming to Jesus with a, a need for him to prove something. They're simply coming to Jesus with a desire to encounter him. And here's what's fascinating. John is the only one of the four gospel writers who includes, who even mentions these people. And on the surface, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Okay, they come and they say they want to see Jesus. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But in John's mind, it is a big deal. This is a big deal. Because it provides this powerful contrast between two very different ways of approaching Jesus. One way, as we've seen in the Jew, in the whole story of John, one way to approach Jesus is to, to, is, is, is to focus on, it's actually by making demands of Jesus, right? Do this, answer this, prove this. That's one way to approach Jesus. The other way to approach Jesus is by expressing desire. We just want to see Jesus. You know, when I look at the post-COVID state of Christianity, in our, and at least in our nation, I feel like there is a lot of this, this demand-focused Christianity Meet my needs. You better make it worth my while. I have lots of other options to pursue. If I don't like something that's going on, I'm out. If I don't feel comfortable with something, I'm out. I mean, it feels very much like a, a consumeristic mindset. Now, think about that. If you ever took economics or whatever, think about that. Consumerism is built on this idea of supply and demand, supply and demand, what I want. And if, and if this isn't what I want, it's not exactly what I want. It, you know, if, if you're not doing what I want, I'll go somewhere else. I'll buy something else. Now that works in the realm of economics, but it doesn't work in our relationship with Jesus. It doesn't work in the realm of Jesus' kingdom. When, when, when our approach to Jesus and to church, and to the spiritual life is all about our demands, it does something in our hearts. It does something in our hearts. It, it, it does what Isaiah was describing a moment ago. It hardens our hearts. It creates a disconnect, an apathy, a lethargy. In other words, as our sense of demand increases in our relationship with Jesus, our desire for Jesus actually decreases. When our sense of demand increases, our desire for Jesus actually de decreases. We become so focused on what doesn't connect with us, what questions we can't answer, that we begin to lose our passion and our desire for Jesus. So a posture of demand says, if you don't meet my preferences, if you can't answer my question in a way that feels satisfactory to me, I'm out. A posture of desire says, Jesus, I want you more than I want answers. I want you more than I want convenience. And I'm willing to live with mystery and with some frustration if it means experiencing your presence. 
The, the, look, the more time I spend in this passage, you know, I rewrote this sermon like four times and completely. I started over four times. Because every time I would finish, I'm like, this, is, this, is, is, this isn't it. <laughs> this isn't what, this isn't what, this isn't moving me. This isn't what God is saying to us. I didn't believe, but it, you know, so I just kept going back and praying. And, and one night, I think it was in my sleep, may have been while I was half asleep, half awake, but I felt like the Lord whispered to my heart this one word, desire. Desire. And that word then made this whole passage come alive to me, and I hope and pray that it does to you as well. I believe what God wants to say to us today, what he wants to say to Christ Community Church is all about desire. How are we approaching Jesus? Are we approaching him from a heart of demand or a heart of desire? And how we answer that question makes all the difference in terms of the kind of relationship with Jesus that we're gonna, we will experience. Okay, so, so how do we guard our hearts from falling into this demand mode and instead um, it reignite the desire? Well, Jesus tells us in this passage, he responds to this group of Gentiles in a kind of a curious way. He doesn't specifically address them but he sort of leverages their approaching him with this desire. He leverages that in order to invite everyone into a journey of desire. So look at what Jesus says in, in response. Verse 23, they just told him, hey, these Greeks are here to see you. This is what he says. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Okay, when, when Jesus says the hour has come, he is talking about the fact that his death is very near. He is within a few days of going to the cross. He's about to be crucified. And earlier in the book of John, you remember in John 2, I think it was, with the wedding, you know, Cana and all that, Jesus said, my hour is not yet here. Now he says, my hour is here. The hour is here. So his mission is about to be fulfilled. He, he, and notice he's choosing the cross. Even though the religious leaders are scheming and to arrest him and all that, we, John wants us to know Jesus is still in control here. He's the one that's allowing this to happen. But here's what I want us to notice. Notice how Jesus describes his upcoming death. The hour has come for the son of man to what? Be glorified. What an interesting way to describe what's about to happen. How is Jesus going to be glorified by hanging naked on a cross as a criminal? I mean, what does this word glorified even mean? Well, it means to display God's glory, to, to, to display the perfection and the brilliance of who God is, right? So again, how does a shameful death on a cross display the brilliance of God's character? Well, where do we start? For one thing, it is the ultimate act of love. God choosing to send his son to die for us. The, 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 the innocent son of God choosing to absorb the consequences of all the violence and shame and hurt and injustice and prejudice and devastation from, from the self-absorbed world that we live in. Jesus took all of that upon himself on the cross. He was innocent, but he chose to bear our shame, our sin, our grief, 
our pain, our brokenness, taking upon himself all the darkness and sinfulness of this world. I mean, what kind of a God does that? God of glory. A God of glory. A, a, a God of, of, of unfathomable love. I mean, Jesus says in verse 32, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is choosing to be crucified so that he can draw people into a relationship with himself. I mean, this kind of love is staggering. It is staggering. It's a self-sacrificing kind of love that's worthy of our praise. It is worthy of giving him glory. But that's not the only way this shame-filled death on the cross, that's not the only way this, this glorifies Jesus, this brings Jesus glory. The cross of Christ also demonstrates the brilliant wisdom and the power of God. Look, look at verse 31. Now is the time, Jesus says, for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the devil. See, the devil thought he had won by getting Jesus, excuse me, Judas to betray Jesus and by getting the religious leaders to kill Jesus. But the devil didn't see the resurrection coming, right? Didn't see the resurrection coming where the power of God is going to defeat death. The devil didn't see Pentecost coming where the spirit of God was going to be poured out upon anyone who believes so that they can then live in the fullness of of God's love and his power so that they can walk in the light of Jesus' love and truth. I mean, Jesus says later in this passage, verse 46, I've come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. I love that. That's salvation. That's what Jesus does, right? Our enemy, the devil, is all about darkness, keeping people in darkness. But on the cross, his power was broken so that people don't have to live in darkness, so think about this, the, the one who stands to accuse us of our sin now has no ground upon which to accuse us because Jesus, the perfect one, took our sin upon himself. This Jesus, friends, is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of us giving him glory by choosing to die a painful, shame-filled death on the cross for you and me, for defeating our enemy, death, once and for all, and for rescuing us from the enemy's darkness. I mean, for all of that, he is worthy. This Jesus is worthy to receive all glory. And so here's the question I want to ask. Do we see him through this lens? Or is he just, oh yeah, Jesus, ho ho. Do we see him through this lens? Is our heart captivated by this incredible savior who was willing to do all of that for us? You see, this is the foundation for our desire for Jesus. When we're talking about this whole idea of desire. This is the foundation it is in seeing him, in seeing him, truly seeing him for the glorious savior that he is, rather than trying to demand that he fit into our personal preferences and, and our tightly boundaried theological boxes. You know, it sort of makes me think of a, of a press conference after a football game, right? Press conference, let's say it's the Super Bowl. Teams just won the Super Bowl by a huge margin a few minutes ago. Imagine this. It's hard to, you know, this is not reality, but just sort of imagine it, uh, just as Bronco fans, right? But anyway, um, so, so imagine millions of fans celebrating in the streets all around the world. They're caught up in the glory of this victory. But, but now, so that's what's happening. The, the victory just happened. People are celebrating all around the world. So there's this press conference happening. 
And imagine this press conference and a journalist raises his hand to ask a question of the winning coach. And here's what he says. He says, hey, so why did you go for it on fourth down in the second quarter? And all the energy is sucked out of the room with that question. Rather than basking in the victory, there will always be people focusing on things they want to criticize, things they don't understand. You see, Jesus deserves the glory, all of it. He deserves all of it. And so when we allow our hearts to be captivated by his amazing love and power demonstrated on the cross, our desire gets stirred up. Because we're seeing the cross, not as this shame-filled whatever. We're seeing it as an opportunity for Jesus to be glorified. That's what's happening. And we are seeing it. We're seeing his love. We're seeing his wisdom on display. And it is captivating. It is captivating. But if we choose to focus our attention on things we don't like, things we don't understand about Christianity or whatever... And allowing this demanding posture to creep into our hearts. Here's what's going to happen. Our desire for Jesus will, will um, dissipate like a tire with a slow leak. It's not dramatic. It just over time. So how do we stir and rekindle a desire for Jesus in our hearts? Well, by focusing our hearts afresh on the brilliance of his love and his wisdom and his power, his mercy, his goodness. So let me just say, look, if you've been in deconstruction mode, which is totally fine, but if you've been in deconstruction mode with your faith and you've kind of found yourself becoming more and more cynical about the church or about worship or about Christianity or whatever, I would urge you, go spend some time with Jesus, not a bunch of podcasts, Spend time with Jesus. Go spend time with him, worshiping him for who he is. Allow your heart to be captivated afresh by his glory. Okay, well, that leads to another aspect of this journey of desire. So look with me at what Jesus says next, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So Jesus is using a farming analogy, agricultural analogy, to describe the impact of his death that his death is going to have on the world. His death is like a seed that gets planted, and the result of that seed being planted is an abundant harvest. It produces many seeds. It produces much fruit. So what is this fruit that he's talking about? This is so cool. And it's easy to miss, but it is, it's right here. What is this fruit he's talking about? When, when does this fruit occur? Well, he tells us right in the next verse. The fruit is you and me. Look at this. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, Jesus is describing a particular heart posture in us that enables his death to do a fruitful thing, that enables his death to bring life to us. So what is that heart posture? Not surprisingly, it has to do with desire. What we desire, what our hearts are attached to. Jesus says, whoever loves their life will lose it, and whoever hates their life will keep it. He's using hyperbole, 
like an exaggerated, he does this often, sort of an exaggerated metaphor here of this love-hate language. But he's using that intentionally to, to jar us out of complacency, right? And he's describing this process that must happen in the heart of a believer if we want to experience the fullness of what Jesus did for us on the cross, in order for us to experience fullness of life, this must happen. It's the process of detachment, of detachment. As, and let me explain what I mean by that. As someone much wiser than me has said, our hearts, the human heart is an idol-making factory. Our hearts are an idol-making factory. In other words, our hearts are designed by God to find our identity, our meaning in something outside of ourselves. And our tendency is, ever since Genesis 3, our tendency as humans is to try to find that and build that identity in the things of this world. So what happens is we attach our hearts to any number of things that our world values. We attach our hearts to the number of social media likes we receive or the size of our bank account or the success of our sports team or how our society think, you know, how hot our, our society thinks our body looks or our GPA or our business prowess. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And so, so you may be wondering, well, how do, how do we know if we've attached our identity to these things? Well, just, look, just pay attention to the emotions that occur in you when that thing, whatever it is, doesn't happen the way you hoped it would. I mean, after the Bronco game the other night, I was, I was so angry and frustrated and mildly depressed about the future. <clears throat> yeah, and I'm like, why do I, why have I allowed my heart to be attached to some, I mean, it's okay to be yeah, disappointed, but it was more than that. Why am, am, you know, am, am I allowing my heart to be so attached to the outcome of a football game or a season or whatever? See, when we attach our identity or our, our satisfaction or our happiness, when we attach it to these things that the world places so much value on, it stirs up anger, anxiety, frustration, exhaustion, a deep insecurity about ourselves, depending on what it is that we're attaching our heart to. And while our heart is so attached to these other things, guess what it's not very attached to? Jesus. Jesus. I mean, letting him be the one who gives us our identity. Letting him be the one who gives us our sense of value and worth. See, as long as we're building an identity on these, these fleeting values of the world, our desire for Jesus is going to diminish. It just will. Because as Jesus talks about, our hearts can only attach at this ultimate level to one thing. We can only really be devoted to one thing, one main thing. And Jesus says, you kind of got to choose which it's going to be. So what's the answer here when our heart's attached to, to these values of the world? Well, Jesus tells us in this love-hate language in verse 20, 25, here's, here's the, the answer. The, 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 this journey of desire that we're talking about here, this journey of desire that he invites us into it, it involves a continual process. This is not overnight. This is a continual process of detaching our hearts from these values of the world and instead attaching our hearts 
to Jesus. This is the journey of discipleship. (laughs) This is the journey of discipleship. See, when we first become a Christian, we tend to focus on the big sins, right? Okay, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't murder, you know, those kinds of things, all don't lust, you know, we kind of, the biggies. We focus on that. But over time, if you walk with Jesus over time, you realize Jesus, Jesus starts going deeper. He starts going after like our motives, the reason we're doing good things. He starts going after our hearts. He starts going after what one person described as the trust structures of our heart. In other words, what are we trusting in to give us value? What have we attached our heart to as a way of measuring our value? And what are we placing our identity? See, Jesus longs for us to place our identity more and more in him, more and more in his love for us, in what he says about us, rather than how the world measures us. And when we begin to do that, we realize there is incredible freedom in this. There's incredible freedom in this. And it stirs in us a deeper desire for him and a deeper detachment from the things of this world. And and when we close our heart to this deepening desire, we end up getting stuck in these ruts of fear and anger and people-pleasing and continual discouragement and on and on and on. John gives us just an example of this later in this chapter. Look at verse 42, jumping down a little bit. Yet at the same time, many, even among leaders, believed in Jesus. Look at this. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. And then John makes this editorial comment, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. So these believers in Jesus had attached their hearts to the praise of other people, and it was robbing them of freedom. It was robbing them of life. Now, look, this doesn't mean they weren't saved or that they didn't truly believe. It just means they're human, like us, right? All of us have these trust structures deeply established in our hearts, I mean, for me, people-pleasing is huge. If I disappoint someone or someone isn't happy with something about our church or whatever, I feel that in my gut. It's not just, oh, it's too bad. I feel it in, a, in my gut. I feel it at the core of my being. But I don't, wanna, I don't want that. Because when I feel it here, it's, it's just like a core thing. I don't want that. I don't want my core identity to depend upon what other people think of a worship service or what other people think of me. So I'm on this journey, I'm on this journey of of detachment so that my heart can more fully attach and desire Jesus. Now, what does this look like specifically for me? Well, here's 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 what it looks like in my own life. Whenever I experience a negative emotion, like anger or fear or the self-hatred comes on me or whatever after a football game or whenever, whenever I experience that, look, I can almost guarantee, if I'm experiencing these kinds of emotions, I can almost guarantee that my heart is desiring something other than Jesus. I am looking to something other than him to build my identity. So maybe it's a part of me that wants to be right when I'm talking to someone because I don't want other people to look down on me. Or maybe it's a part of me that's afraid of disappointing someone or whatever. But So when I'm starting to feel these things, once I take a moment and I just begin to explore that emotion and I realize what's beneath it, 
I have this beautiful opportunity to acknowledge that to Jesus and to welcome his love into that place of shame or fear or his self-hatred or whatever. And when, when I do that, See, when, when, I, when I attach my heart, I'm detaching here, I'm attaching here. When I attach my heart to his love in that way, the, the, the pull of fear and anger dissipates. My, my desire for Jesus is, is like reawakened in that moment. Again, this is a journey, but it's reawakened. I'm actually, look, I'm, here's what's happening. I'm actually giving Jesus glory in that moment as the one I desire more than anything else. I am giving him glory. Jesus is being glorified in me. Now imagine what would happen if we began to live this way more and more. If we welcomed the presence of Jesus into these places where our attachment to the world is is exposed and we allowed our hearts to attach afresh to Jesus' love and power. What would happen? I know what would happen because I'm living it. I'm experiencing this in my own life. It's not that I don't feel these negative emotions anymore. I do. But when I do, I am better able to identify the root issue and to let my heart detach in that moment. My heart consciously detach from whatever I'm trying to base my identity upon in that moment and instead choosing to attach to Jesus. And again, I'm, I'm just, I'm experiencing this. I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing my desire for Jesus growing and my passion for him increasing. I mean, this is, this is the journey that I'm on and I'm loving it. it. It has enabled me to walk in greater freedom from sins that had held me in bondage. It has given me access to a deeper joy and peace than I've ever been able to experience. I'm, I'm not saying I'm arrived. Please hear me. I'm, I'm not saying I'm arrived. I mean, God knows how far I have to go. But I will say, I will say that this journey of desire is transforming me. And I don't want to go back to an on-demand relationship with Jesus where it's all about me. I want my heart, I want my life to be all about him. All about him. Finding more and more space in my life to worship him for the glorious savior that he is and finding more and more freedom in my heart to detach from the values of the world so that I can attach my heart afresh to him. See, when, when, this, when, when, we, when we embrace this journey I'm talking about, this journey Jesus is talking about, when we embrace this journey of desire, we find ourselves exactly where Jesus wants us. Look at, what he's, look at what he says in the next verse. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. The language here is interesting. It speaks of like a personal attendant who is assigned, who is assigned a master that they follow and they serve. And that master in turn honors them. And I love that picture. We are personal attendants to Jesus. We are personal attendants to Jesus. We're serving him. And look, in that, po- in that position, if our heart posture is that of demand, We will reluctantly serve him. We will reluctantly follow him, going through the motions. But if our heart posture is desire, we will joyfully follow him. We will joyfully serve him and be with him. And God the Father will be honored by us and will honor us. I mean, what an incredible difference 
our heart posture makes in our journey with Jesus. Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, would you lead us? Would you speak to us? So I want to invite you right now. Just want to ask you, how how is your relationship with Jesus? On a scale of one to 10, what is your desire level for Jesus? One being non-existent, 10 being on fire. What, from one to 10, what is your desire level for Jesus? Just honestly. And if that number, you, you came up with a number, if that number is lower than you'd like it to be, are you willing to explore with Jesus why that is? Jesus, would you show us right now? Has a demand posture begun to creep its way into our relationship with you? Where we're focusing more on our our preferences rather than our desire for you? Jesus, would you show us right now, would you just show us if there are things our hearts have attached to for our, our identity? Our appearance, other people's opinions, our sports teams, social media likes, whatever it is. Show us anything our heart is attached to more than you. So if Jesus is bringing something to mind, I just invite you in the quiet of your heart, just confess that to him. And tell him you want him to be first. You want him to be your ultimate desire. God, we want you, Jesus, we want you to be our ultimate desire. Would you help us detach our hearts from these things to recognize when it's happening, when we're stirred up with fear, anxiety, whatever, discouragement, just when that that starts hitting us in the core of our being, would you remind us, ah, that's what's going on here. And we would choose in that moment to detach our heart from these things as we attach our heart to you, finding our identity in you. And so we ask you, Jesus, to speak into our identity. Each person here, each person watching this, speak to us personally. Speak into our identity and fill us with your love. And I'm just asking you, God, awaken my desire. Awaken our desire for you, God. Awaken it. We mean it. We mean it. We're asking for this, Lord. Awaken this desire for you. Holy Spirit, do that in us. And whatever that looks like as we worship, as we, the worship team leads us, whether we're standing, sitting, kneeling, we're praying, maybe even into the week, God, what does this look like? 
where our hearts are more and more aware of and desiring you, God. So do that, Holy Spirit, do that in us, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Hey, so wherever you are at after this message, uh, we want you to know we are here for you and we have people who would love to pray for you. Um, you can always go onto our website, click the chat button, um, and somebody's there that would love to pray for you. You can also set up a time to meet with one of our pastors, um, but we hope you leave today feeling inspired. And be sure to like and subscribe, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your week.